Welcome to Brain and Avat. We are delighted to be talking to Jay Brennan, and we're going to be talking about the problems of democracy. Jay, would you like to start with a real-life case? Sure. Let's take something that happened recently that was notable. Uh, back in 2016, we had the Brexit vote in the United Kingdom. And as you might have heard in various news reports, one of the most commonly things that was Googled after the vote took place was, what is Brexit and what will it do? What are the effects going to be? Because we have a good reason to think a lot of people voted without really knowing what they were voting for. But even more interesting is afterwards, a number of polling firms, including the firm Ipsos Mori, pulled people and asked them lots of information or questions about the nature of the relationship the United Kingdom had with the rest of the European Union. They asked them questions about, and these are factual questions which are relevant to the decision. It's questions about how many immigrants are going back and forth, how much foreign investment is coming from China versus the European Union, how much money is going back and forth from welfare payments and so on. And it turned out that people who voted to remain and people who voted to leave were both systematically wrong about the answers to those questions. However, in general, remain voters were closer to the truth, significantly closer to the truth than leave voters. So you have a case for thinking that maybe they voted to leave because they were systematically misinformed, right? For instance, if I think if you have a person who's like, we got to get rid of, you know, the Mexican immigrants and they believe that the country is 50% Mexican immigrants and it's 1%. You might think that their attitudes towards immigration might change if they knew the actual numbers. So here's a question then, is the Brexit vote legitimate if we have good reason to think that the people who voted for it were systematically misinformed about the facts that are pertinent and relevant to that decision? A lot of people think that one of those answers is the correct answer. We recently had another guest on the show, Lionel Shriver, and she assesses these two positions on Brexit and wrote this novel around it with sort of existential import. She paralleled the decision, should we stay or should we go, with a, a decision about suicide, should the protagonist in the story stay or go. And she thinks that there is an answer to this question, should we stay or should we go, and that the answer, if you believe the incorrect answer, you must be idiotic, stupid. You must have a fundamental lack of understanding about the way the world works. But what you're suggesting is it could be that both sides have that to some degree, maybe one side more than the other. And it suggests that maybe neither decision would be a legitimate one if it's supported by people who don't have a good reason for believing what they believe. So I wonder this. If the claim is that we can't trust the people are idiots, they vote for terrible things, and they're easily misled, who are the people misleading them? Well, it's the technocrats. It's those that are saying, I know better, and running a particular agenda, maybe in a way that's more persuasive or more sexy, distorting the facts in the right way. But they hold, I imagine, quite strongly held views that are backed up by enormous amounts of evidence. It's not clear to me that you'd get a different answer if the technocrats you know, were the only ones who are allowed to vote. Right. And this is really one of the big problems with politics. You know, I like to say we, we sort of have a choice between two ways of arranging things. We can concentrate power in the hands of a few. If they do, we do that, we'll probably have self-centered, selfish, self-directed political behavior. It might be intelligent, but directed at the wrong things. We can spread it among the many, in which case maybe they'll have good feelings and good thoughts, but they might not know what they're doing. I do wonder though, how much of political behavior is of the leaders of the people in power is based upon what they think works given what people want. So here's a model. This is not a fair model. I think politicians, I'll give them more credit than this. They are to some degree sincere. My congressperson is my neighbor. I'm like kind of waving in his direction. I don't want to say bad things about him. He's a nice guy. But politicians want power. And in a way, like you can think of like a capitalist who just wants to make money. And you're like, I don't care if I sell you, you know, orange soda or like health bars, whatever you want. I just want to make some money. I don't care what I sell. And that's not literally true. A lot of people care about their products and so on. But you can think of them as being these money-oriented people willing to sell anything. There's a model of politicians which says, you know, politicians say, I just want some power. Give me some power and I'll give you what you want. So what do you want? You want more healthcare? I'll do that. You want less abortion? I'll do that. And they're just competing to kind of provide a product. And so a lot of political behavior of the leaders is itself perhaps a function of what voters are like and what they want and how they behave. I actually think, to be honest, if anything, since I wrote Against Democracy back in 2016, I worry that I give voters too much credit and that people might be surprised I say that. They're like, oh, of course you would say that, Jay. But honestly, I think more and more evidence is coming in that I paint and others paint voters as more cognitive than they are. So, so like when you read Against Democracy or books like mine, like Leah Soman's book or Brian Kaplan's book, or this whole massive literature in political psychology and economics saying that voters are misinformed or irrational, 
the paint, the story that's told is still over and over again. Voters, when they vote, are trying to get the government to do something. They wanted to achieve some sort of end. Politics is about policy. They're just not very good at it. They don't know what they're doing. They're misinformed. I'm actually now thinking, thanks to work by people like Liliana Mason and Donald Kinder and Calmo, Nathan Calmo, Chris Reagan and Larry Bartels, I'm becoming more and more convinced that voters aren't even trying to get government to do something for them. Their political behavior is not about policy and policy is incidental. Maybe that's worth exploring, but that's sort of where I'm at now and stuff. So what is it that you think voters are trying to do then? I think a lot of it might be about sort of gaining social benefits for yourself. So think about some analogies, sports fandom. I like sports. I watch sports teams, but there's also true that you get a lot of social benefits from sports fandom. I grew up in the New England area, so I'm a fan of all the New England teams. Even though I hardly ever watch basketball, the Celtics are in the finals. I'll still root for them because I'm a good Bostonian. But growing up in New England, if you're wearing the sports team memorabilia and the affiliate and stuff like that and all the accoutrements, then other people will be more likely to be a friend, more likely to care about you. You're sort of engaging in a signal that you're one of the team and that brings with it certain benefits. And in fact, I think a huge amount of human behavior is described by signaling models. You know, like just another some examples, when you propose to someone, it's very common in the West to offer them an engagement ring. You basically are saying, I love you so much and to prove it that I'm actually committed because talk is cheap. I've wasted two months salary on this useless trinket. The fact that it's a useless trinket is really important. If I said, oh, look, I put a down payment on the house. Well, that's useful. I could benefit from that. If I said, I invested it in stock options. Well, that's self-serving. The fact that it's expensive and the fact that it's useless is part of what makes it work. It's a strong signal to the person who committed and also a good test for yourself. Or think about MS-13, which is a criminal gang in the United States and a lot of the Americas, in fact, have a problem where people need to cooperate with one another, but they're criminals. They're not trustworthy. They're bad people. Every single one of them is a bad person. You cannot be in that gang and be a good person. Or at least have, you have to do horrible things to be in it. So how do you prove that people are going to work together and show that they can trust each other and cooperate inside the group, given how uncooperative they are without the group? You have tests, you have initiation rights. The fact that someone's willing to suffer through the initiation right is proof of sincerity. You require them to get facial tattoos, which make them repulsive and repugnant to the outside world. But the fact that I'm willing to basically mutilate myself in this way shows you I'm committed. It also incentivizes me to stay committed because now other people reject me. And even like we're in religion itself, it's a very common view in the sociology of religion that religion serves, among other things, a coordination purpose. I'm proving to you that I'm a member of the group by engaging in a kind of expensive signaling, by believing weird stuff or doing unpleasant things, cutting off parts of my body, refusing to eat and do fun things. And it works. In fact, when people have this in common, they cooperate better. It increases trust. It reduces transaction costs. It reduces monitoring. So I think what you might call the democratic realist view, which, you know, if you take like Christopher Aiken, Larry Bartels, Lenia Mason, Kinder Calmo, or the Michigan model, people like Converse and others in like the 50s and 60s, they're both saying that really, it looks like that's what voters are up to. You get social benefits from engaging a certain kind of political behavior, saying certain things, agreeing with what the party says, and you're mostly trying to do that. And then even when you vote, you're mostly engaging this kind of signaling process. And the actual politics is pretty incidental. Most voters, according to this model, don't really care what the government does. Even when they say they care, they don't really. It's insincere. Maybe only like one out of 10 people is genuinely using politics for the purpose of promoting or demoting policy. And the other people are just engaged in this expensive social coordination for the purpose of social benefits. But it does seem to be the case that, especially in America, there's so much pageantry attached to politics that the amount of money that's spent on ticker tape and parades and these, you know, stadium level events, it really does look like a sports match. And if I think about those Trump rallies, they had that same kind of energy of, of rooting for your side to win and beat the other guys who are evil. It does seem that it can't be the case that people are treated entirely like a sports team. So in the sense that you say I root for the Boston Celtics because I grew up in Boston, we have an understanding why you care about that team, but it has nothing to do with anything else. In other words, the players could be bad and you're still going to root for them. They could have beaten up their ex-girlfriends. You say it doesn't matter. Like, you know, this is my team. It represents my town. And that's important to me. Democrats and Republicans don't seem like they're associated with a particular place necessarily, although there are red states and blue states. Those things have changed over time. It does seem that there were certain policies that resonated with the party, even though some of those policies have changed. So 
We think about the Environmental Protection Act that comes out and the Nixon, a Republican. And I think now Democrats see themselves as guardians of the environment. So there can be these changes. But it does strike me that you could turn off your voter base dramatically if you change course too much on some policy issues. That if the Democrats became extreme pro-lifers, that they would lose a lot of their supporters, that people aren't just wearing those t-shirts because they say, these are my guys and wherever they go, I'll follow. There's some point where they say, I won't follow. And that's why you have a back and forth in who runs the country. You don't have one party dominance. So that has to be partly true. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that there's more to that analogy than it seems. And here's some of the evidence for that. So like even Converse back in 1964 publishes a paper where he's surveying Americans and asking them what their views are on certain policies and then tracking them over time. And he says, oh, the correlation between their view in one year and the next year is like zero, 0. 0.00. It's really low. Most people are kind of randomly picking things on the survey. You asked a lot of people, and this varies from country to country, but you generally get the same results in most countries. What do you think about politics? They'll give you a somewhat random answer. You ask them the same question a year later or a month later, they'll give you different answers. If you ask them, why did you change your mind? They'll be like, I didn't change my mind. I've always thought this. When you ask a lot of voters, what does your party stand for? They get it wrong. They're mistaken, but they vote for that same party over and over. You can do a trick, and this is a real experiment. There's a TV show host in the United States that does this with people and puts it on late night television. I don't watch that stuff, but one of them, Jimmy Kimmel or some other dude does this. But it's a real experiment where you go up to voters and you're like, here, hey, you're a Democrat. Here's the Democratic platform. What do you think about it? And they will on the spot say it's wonderful and come up with great rationalizations of how great it is. But they're like, hi, I tricked you. It's the Republicans platform. And they're like, no, it's not. No, this really is what the Democrats think. So that's part of it. And the other thing is, I think even on the policy changes, you get these surprising results where parties will switch on a dime and people just switch with them. So a good recent example I think a lot of people know about is what happened with free trade and Donald Trump. Historically speaking, it actually, or another one would be Russia in the United States. Historically speaking, you know, Republicans were pro-free trade, Democrats were anti-free trade. You know, I don't want to exaggerate that's to some degree, the Democrats are actually fairly pro-free trade, but they don't want to admit it to their party because they know better. They took econ class and their party doesn't, but they talk that way. And then Trump comes in and becomes a presumptive nominee. And almost within about a month period in the United States in 2016, like between like early winter and mid spring, suddenly almost every Republican switches from being pro-free trade to being protectionist. They didn't say Trump had these wonderful arguments that just refuted hundreds of years of economic theory. Trump had great ideas. It's rather you, you interview them and go, why did you change your mind? They say, what are you talking about? I always thought this in the same way that Jimmy down at the pub, when the goalie was playing for his team, that goalie was the greatest of all time. And when he switches and starts playing for the rival team, Jimmy's like, I've always said he was overrated and sucked. It's like, Jimmy, you did. We have record of you not saying that. It's like, no, I've always, and he's sincere. He really believes that. And one final thing, and this is the hardest to kind of uh, describe, but I think if you look at the first couple of chapters of Aiken and Bartels, they provide quite a bit of evidence for this. There does seem to be a lot of random switching by identity group. So they'll say things like, you have these two identity groups, one in Canada and the United States. And before the Great Depression, they're voting for opposite political parties. And then the Great Depression happens and they switch. They both switch political sides, but again, they're switching against each other. And you have basically the same demographics, the same kind of party, the same kind of policy outcomes but they're switching on the basis of an external shock. Like, oh, we don't like what's happening. We'll just, and then they just stick that way over and over again. So Aiken and Bartels claim that actually what happens is you have this idea of identity with Boston Irish Catholic or Southern Evangelical or college professor or whatever it might be. And that demographic gets attached to a particular party for largely accidental historical reasons that don't track the party promoting that group's interests or their ideology. And then people just keep copying them. So they think that, yeah, it's not geographic in the way that, you know, you root for the Boston team because you're from Boston, but it is identity-based. As Kwame Anthony Apaya says, you vote for who you are, not what you want. So I wonder whether an objection to your view would be that, yes, all of this sounds right, but in limited mm -hmm. cases. So Mark is very politically minded. I think he would belong to one of the more fervent groups that you describe in your book. He's going to say to you, well, yes, you can cite these kind of cases, but they're very few and far between. The majority of people have a firm grasp on the particular issues that they care about. They know that their party votes in that way. And so this is an empirical question more than anything else is, you know, what are the percentages of people who are ignorant in these ways and just signaling and just voting for the politician with the best hair versus people who really care about the individual issues. And he's going to say more people are like that. How do we decide this? Is there good data on this? 
Yeah, I think the best review of the data is if you look at Kinder and Calmos, neither liberal nor conservative. And at the end of the book, they try to track like, are people ideologically, are there single issue voters? How much of this random vacillation is taking place, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end, they say, we think maybe one out of five Americans is really voting on the basis of ideology. And the other 80% or so, they're just not using their votes that way. And I, I think one of the reasons why we often have trouble with this as political philosophers and philosophers in general, or intellectuals in general, is because we are so cognitive. We spend so much time thinking about cause and effect and thinking about right and wrong and justice. And we have this model of the other people, they're doing what we're doing, just maybe not as well. You know, there's not as good at it as we are. Like we're good at constructing arguments and stuff and they're not, but maybe they're just not doing. And in a way it would be surprising if they were right. So, you know, if you know, the theories of rational ignorance and rational irrationality, they claim that the reason voters are misinformed or act biased is because their individual votes count for so little, they don't have an incentive to behave better. But in a way, those theories are giving too much credit to the voters. It's almost like, given that your vote doesn't count for very much, which it typically doesn't, why would you engage in politics at all? What's the solution to the paradox of voting, the fact that people participate? And a really good answer is you derive significant social benefits, depending on who you are, by engaging in kind of political behavior, right? And so even as like a college professor is known for writing some libertarian stuff, people are like, but you don't vote libertarian, do you? And I'm like, time I can vote for the libertarian part of the US, they're a bunch of, they're, they're ridiculous. None of those people should leave. It's just, they're ridiculous. So if you're voting Republican, no, and I do, but I tend to vote Democrat. And they're like, ah, oh, great. You're one of us. We love you. It's cool. Like as long as you're not voting Democrat, we don't care if you publish stuff that's like smash the state, no gods, no masters in like journals, as long as like you vote Democrat in real life, you're cool. And so like I, even I get like treated better than I otherwise would be because I vote the right way and I do the thing that like my group does. So I think a lot of that is what's going on. I think genuine ideology is rare. Ideological voting is rare. For most voters, politics is not about policy. So I, I have enormous sympathy for this view. And I think a lot of people really aren't thinking about the particular policies. You might have one policy voters. So people say, all I care about is, you know, what your view is on immigrants or your relationship with Israel or whether you're going to push the taxes up. The other stuff I don't care about at all. And I think you can also have this negative feedback loop where the way the press will cover parties is to say they do really well with soccer moms so soccer moms go well i guess this is who i'm supposed to be voting for so i buy all that i also think that very few people are analytic thinkers that a lot of people are kind of guided by a strong sense of emotion and how they feel embodied and they're going to to rallies is going to be great for that stuff and that's why all the successful politicians don't need to focus on the technocratic stuff because it falls on deaf ears i suppose the question is this Assume that when people are voting, they're voting in these kind of arbitrary ways. Does that make us worse off? Would it be better to disregard this model, to say, don't let these chumps vote, take away their voting rights, only let the analytical thinkers vote, or do away with this notion of democracy entirely? Let's just get the smartest people in the room together like we do at you know successful corporations and let those guys decide what will be best for everyone. I want to push back and say there's even a more fundamental question. Before you even ask about alternatives, I think... There's this real question about democratic legitimacy in general, right? So the average democratic theorist is going to have the average like student in sixth grade who's just taken a civics class will have for about three weeks before they forget it. The average person who has any kind of sophistication about politics would believe is something like this. If we elect, if Jason is elected to become, you know, the member of parliament from his district or something like that, why does he have the right to rule? And they're going to say it's requires at least these two things. There might be other conditions that we attach. One is he won by some sort of process of elections where people engage in these speech acts, they affirm that they want him. And that's a complicated question what it means for people to vote for, because we might disagree, we might vote for different reasons. We might support some parts of his policy and on others, even on the, on the traditional populist model, but we vote for him. And it's not just that he vote for him, but also that he in some way responds to our interests and reasons and concerns and what we want him to do. It has to be at least those two things in your typical theory. Because imagine we vote for him and he just does whatever the hell he wants, ignoring what we want. Most people think that's illegitimate. He's supposed to in some way respond to our goals and interests. And if you have the second thing where he responds to our goals and interests, but we didn't vote for him, that you could just imagine like I become dictator of the world, but it turns on I'm incredibly good at figuring out what's in people's interests. So I just do what's good for them. Hope you wouldn't say that's democratic or legitimate, even though I actually do what the people want. 
So you typically think it's these two things. You're elected the right way and you respond to the people's goals and interests. There's already with that second thing, traditional puzzles about how do we aggregate interests? What if the people are misinformed? But it gets even worse if this empirical political theory is correct, because it's like, what does it even mean that you were elected? Like people don't even really want you. They're just like, I want to impress Mark. So I, I vote this way. But the point is to impress Mark and almost everyone, that's what they're doing. They're just trying to impress their friends as an incidental thing. Now you have power. What does it even mean for legitimacy? You know, so Egan and Bartels, they, that doesn't necessarily mean that democracy is legitimate, but it does mean that like the most common theory of democratic legitimacy just can't be right if this research is right. And by the way, it's a puzzle. Like, I think if you ask me like, all right, what, what are the numbers here? I'm like, I think it's 85% are engaged in signaling and 15% are ideological and doing real voting. Suppose I'm wrong. Suppose it's 50-50. That 50 is still a pretty big number. It's still not like, I don't know, maybe, you know, if it were like 90, 10, the other way, maybe that's enough where you can go, these are the anomalous voters that don't really matter. But I think even on a pretty conservative view of, the, of this literature, you've got to say it's rather substantial portion of people who are voting for these incidental reasons. And if they are, you have to come up with a new theory of democratic legitimacy other than the standard one, which is the government was elected the right way in response to what the people want. So the kind of case where I can see democracy as being legitimate and playing a very important role is when things are really bad. So I'm an anarchist and I think that almost all the political issues we discuss are completely irrelevant to our lives. So I think they play almost no role. People have enormously strong opinions, at least some people do, about particular issues and they're incredibly upset about Roe v. Wade or whatever it is. The vast majority of people will make absolutely zero impact on their lives. But maybe democracy is important and voting is important for instances where there really will be an impact. And not just an impact on one or two people and not just a slight impact, but an enormously negative impact. So suppose there's suddenly a dictator that steps into power and causes horrendous harm to his population. You would imagine in that kind of case where everyone is unified against a universal foe who truly is a foe, that a democratic system would vote that person out if a democracy was functioning. That seems like a good thing. So in those kind of instances, I can see the value. But in today's world, I really don't. So we touched on the idea of alternatives. It seems like there's a couple of ways in which we could go one would be to say, forget about what people tell you their interests are. That's irrelevant. What matters are their revealed preferences. So imagine that you could educate people with all the relevant data and you say, well, that's the preference that would actually matter. And so you could run a simulation, for example, to get a sense of what happens if plug a representative sample into the correct politics, philosophy, and economics class. And you see what they come up with afterwards. You say, those are the interests that matter as opposed to what people's effervescent interests are, the things that kind of, you know, come and go as the wind blows. The other is you just say, let's just keep the people out of it. We can even, to for the sake of stability, make them believe that they played some kind of role. So we just have a complete sham. We get a conspiracy of people together who say, yeah, we have your votes and you participate and we have all the poetry of the democracy and people feel like they played their role. But actually behind the scenes, we just get the technocrats to do it. And there's probably some level of this that happens anyway, which is that if you think about a show like Yes Minister, what you have is the bureaucratic class who actually get things done, who play the politicians. They say, yeah, yeah, say whatever you want to the people, do what you need to do. We're just going to do the thing that we've been doing for the last 500 years. Yeah. And in fact, that's often what's going on. Like I, before this started, I did this wave and I said, when I wave like this, I'm waving at my neighbors. I'm at home right now. And my neighbors are the government of the United States. I'm odd in my neighborhood because I don't work for the government. I work for a university, a private university too. It's weird. And I often have asked people like that, like, all right, so a new politician is elected. How does that affect your day-to-day -day life? And the majority of these bureaucrats who are working these alphabet agencies in Washington, D.C., it doesn't, you know, there's a new person who's the boss of your boss, but your actual policy is resistant to it. And that's not just anecdotal. In fact, a tremendous amount of research shows that bureaucratic bodies are not that much influenced by electoral changes. They do have significant power of their own and they kind of maintain course. This is actually one reason why I said early on in my book Against Democracy, I'm sort of anti-technocratic and also pretty anti-democratic. You know, I think democracy is better than the alternatives we've tried, but it has a lot of flaws and should be open to new things. And oddly, a lot of my ideological enemies, but friends in real life are actually quite pro-technocratic, but also very democratic. So like take Tom Cristiano loves technocracy. 
right? He loves having big government agencies with lots and lots of power to do things. He even at various times has advocated like the people vote for the ends of government and then they can that power to the technocrats and go, we told you where to steer the ship, but we're idiots. So you tell us how to get there. That's your job. So he's off people. Many times you find that strong Democrats are strongly in favor of technocracy despite being Democrats. Whereas I tend to think actual technocracy suffer from all sorts of like incentive problems and they're pretty hard to steer. I think oftentimes that one of the things you find with more informed voters is that they're often quite anti-technocratic. So, you know, we probably, maybe we'll get into this idea of epistocracy as opposed to technocracy, but it is important to note they're different. And epistocracy is going to be something like you have an electoral representative system, but in some way votes in that system are weighted according to knowledge. That's a very broad category as opposed to imbuing a tremendous amount of power into a small number of people's hands who then don't have much oversight, which is more of what people mean by technocracy. You can call that a form of epistocracy too. But it's not really what I have in mind. But even when we talk about alternatives, you know, there's this more fundamental question about what standards we're using. Because we're doing what you might call ideal theory in political philosophy, which is asking, what would a perfectly just society look like? I think that's actually really easy. And the answer is it wouldn't have a state at all. If they were to justify it at all, states are justified as responses to human depravity. If people were decent, not even perfectly good, not angels, but just decent, it's really not clear that we would need a state at all. I won't give you the whole argument for that. Chris Fryman and I have a recent paper coming in politics, philosophy, and economics called Wine on Anarchism. And we try very strongly to show that like the ideal statism is incoherent, just doesn't work. And all the people who try to argue that an ideal people would have a state rely upon non-ideal assumptions to make that argument. That's true of David Eslin, it's true of Rawls, it's true of Kafka, it's true of others. So if we're talking about what's the ideal thing, no state at all. People just cooperate and do the right thing. If we ask what would be the ideal response to people's bad political behavior, there's something, there's something to be said for that, but it's a bit of a weird question because you're like, it's asking, saying like, these people suck, but what would really great people do in response to their sucking? Well, you we can do that work if you want to, but we don't actually live in a world where we have is like the people who work in the government are just amazing and awesome angels and all the voters are idiots. So I think really a better kind of political theory would be, which is sort of what I'm working on now. I'm slowly writing this book on this. I'm not quite in the second half, the interesting half yet, which is what do you do if the people are idiots, but also you, the politician, you should know that you're an idiot too. All that stuff that's wrong with the people, it's wrong with you. You also don't know what you're doing. You're also engaging in signaling. So I think what we basically need to develop is a realistic view of politics that's actually action guiding would be something like a set of prophylactic rules that say something like, congratulations, you've been elected. The process by which you've been elected probably doesn't mean much about in terms of like whether people actually support what you want to do. It doesn't give you any good reason to think that the ideas that you have are good. You probably aren't all that smart. The process thing you have to do govern a large country is probably too hard for anyone to actually do anyways, even if you were smarter and better informed. So what do you do now that you're incompetent? You're incompetent to run the country, but you have to do it. What the hell do you do? It's almost like you shouldn't be drinking and driving, but the fact is you are drinking and driving and you're not able to get out of the car. How do you drink and drive the safest way possible? I think that's sort of what we need from our political theory. So let's take that analogy of the driving drunk. Let's say you know, you realize all of a sudden that you're inebriated and you're on the road. You would want to slow down, right? So yeah. I would think that the right answer would be less legislation, less control of your populace as the state. You want to do less, as little as possible, I would think. You want to drive as slowly and as little a distance as possible. Yeah, and maybe make smaller changes, right? You know, shift things smaller. So I do think it leads to a kind of conservatism. And I don't mean conservatism in the sense of right-wing politics, but in the sense of reduced change. Because politics is really hard. Social change is very hard to judge. It's very difficult to assess what, the, what will actually happen with new policies. Before we started recording this, Mark and I were asking, like, well, what will the reversal of Roe v. Wade actually do in the United States? Like, you know, 10 years from now, how many fewer abortions will take place as a result of that? We don't really know that. You know, what will the effects of that be? We don't really know. We can speculate, but we don't know. So as a politician, you don't know that either. So you, know, you might have these grand visions, but if you actually were given power, would you want to implement them? Do you, do you really know what will happen? You know, what if it reached a disaster? So it often calls for smaller changes over time rather than large dramatic changes at once. Which means to say, it's conservatives of maintaining the status quo, which means if you have a very left-wing, you know, if you have a very left-wing polity, I just should make it like this, you don't make radical changes to the right all of a sudden because you don't know what will happen. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is 
the problem is that a lot of people think that the status quo is horrendous. And so you've got to make these sweeping changes in order to fix it. But then are you saying that the right thing to do, given our fallibility, is to be as centrist as possible? To be honest, I'm not really sure if centrist means anything, given everything I've said before. I don't think people really believe what they say they believe. And, and actually, one of the findings is that the typical centrist is like the least ideological person. It's not usually that people are ideologically committed to centrism. It's just that like but people don't have much of an opinion that they tend to just pick the thing in the middle because they don't really care. So yeah, I wouldn't say centrist. I would just say that like, honestly, the status quo could be terrible. I think in many respects, the status quo of almost every country is really terrible. They do tremendously unjust things all the time. It seems to, so I don't want to defend that. Like you, I think justice requires anarchism. However, sort of like just doing what you're currently doing. It's like, our shit may be on fire and there may be rats and there may be coals and so on waters coming in, but there's a door over there that will take me to another shit. However, if I open the door, I'm forced to go into it. So what if we're in that kind of situation where we have, I don't want to overstate this. I don't think we have radical uncertainty. I think we often do know that certain policies are better than others. We do have evidence that like certain kinds of reforms would really make things a lot better and other things make things worse. We're not radically ignorant about this. However, politicians are often in a position where even if there is that information and they could know what's right to do, they're not privy to it. They don't have an incentive structure that makes it likely they'll know what it is. They have an incentive structure that might pervert their behavior and make them more likely to do what's not a good idea, but sounds good. And so to some degree, it's like, if this is the amount of knowledge that we actually have as the Republic of science when it comes to politics, politicians are maybe down here and they should know that about themselves and that should change how they govern. So a couple of thoughts. The one might be that when you recognize that you're drunken in this car, what you've recognized is that you're actually on a racetrack and that you're going, you know, at 300 kilometers an hour. And that's kind of what governments do, right? They're passing laws all the time. They often aren't these checks on their power. If you had that realization, you say, I'm drunk, I shouldn't be doing this. Then keeping at 300 kilometers an hour seems completely nuts. Uh, slowing it down means actually making a radical change which would be to try and dismantle a lot of government to say, well, hold on a second. We don't know what we're doing. We're terrible guardians of you know, what's good for people. Let's try and give as much of it back as we can, which would be radical and not just maintaining a status quo bias. It doesn't seem to follow from the rest of your arguments that we ought to maintain the status quo because the status quo could be a highly libertarian place or it could be like a totalitarian place. If the communists suddenly realized, wow, we don't know what we're doing, we shouldn't be doing this, one would hope they wouldn't just say, well, let's just keep doing it. You'd hope they say, well, let's stop some of the sort of uh, impositions we have on people. The other thing that liberal democracies tend to do is recognize this and say, look, people are fallible. So let's limit their powers and let's check them. So let's split them up. Let's have different chambers of legislatures who check each other. Let's have an independent judiciary. Let's have an independent executive. You know, we'll have different political parties and, you know, make it possible for them to sort of shift. You mentioned Roe earlier, and this is this interesting question about allowing the wise to decide or allowing the people to decide. So in Roe, the Supreme Court says, we are the wise elders. We have interpreted the constitution to include a constitutional right to abortion. And we're gonna say that abortion is now proclaimed to be legal across the land. And we're gonna use our wisdom to decide when. So first two trimesters, do what you like. In Dobbs, the court says, whoa, <laughs> this is a lot of responsibility. We're not sure the constitution says that. We think it's probably quite silent on this question. So why don't you guys decide as the voters? If you want to pick a politicians that are pro-life or pro-choice, have at it. You know, you can have this variety. You'll have a marketplace of different abortion laws across the country. Maybe you'll manage to get a federal abortion law if you can, you know, get your team to win, but let the people decide. And so here's this tension between do we let the wise judges who've all gone to Harvard or Yale, you know, make the decision? Or do we allow these, you know, scrubby truckers and whatever other ragtag group of uninformed sports fans decide decisions about life and death? It's funny you say that because during the day that that decision took place, I got on Facebook to try to irritate some of my friends and said, listen, for years and years, I've been saying this stuff about governments should just do what's right. Whatever the independent truth is about justice, they should do that. If people vote against it, that just makes them assholes. You're just the person who voted against justice. That makes you a bad person. It doesn't give us reason to do it. It just means that we should point to you go bad and you should change. Feel bad about yourself and change, right? But you guys in response to me keep saying, no, Jeremy Waldron, the most important thing is the right to decide and to have like the right of rights, the right to decide. And we should, there's not an independent truth that we have to aim at. And you 
constantly complaining about the Supreme Court being a super legislature that it gives itself power to make legislation. So what was this recent decision? The Supreme Court said, we are divesting power from ourselves and we're giving it back to legislatures. The people's representatives will decide what their rights are here. So I said, so you Democratic theorists must be absolutely delighted by this result. Since I think there's an actual right to abortion, I'm not, but you must be super dis like just, this is the wonderful day for democracy. It's one of the best things that's happened recently in politics in the United States. You're probably going to watch the cap parties and eat cake and stuff, but no, they didn't actually say that. I guess they don't really mean what they think, or they think this is a special exception for some reason. Yeah. I don't know, but you are right that when you challenge some of these rules that we're talking about, we're using certain metaphors. I think honestly, it's going to be a combination of a bunch of different kinds of prophylactic rules. When they're all feasible, it's going to be a lot of like, well, if this is going on, what do you do? If you know this, if you don't know that, but and it's like, I think in the abstract, we could say these things like we, we need, and I think we're all in agreement with this, like in the real world, you need to have rules about what to do when you don't know what you're doing, when you have reason to think that you might be flawed, exactly what those rules would be is a pretty complicated, hard question. So you've spoken about that in the mind of the politician. So the politician should have greater humility about these things, make less drastic choices, smaller controls, smaller changes in direction, cutting back on legislation. That Those all make sense. Now, what do we do in the minds of voters? So you've got a whole lot of voters. You can't really control what they think individually. You can't really instill in them the same humility. So what do we do? Do we implement a system where we discount some of their voting credit? Do we discount it to different degrees, according to some of the systems that you mentioned earlier? What's the right way to deal with these voters who also don't have much political knowledge? Yeah, it's a good question. And in a way, what I'd like to do, and this is more true of the U.S. than many other countries, is depoliticize social life. Because part of the problem is that if politics is being driven by the desire for social benefits and social status, that perverts it in certain ways. So think back to the analogy to religion. Imagine that the three of us all go to the same church, but I seem to be the truest believer. You know, I go to church daily and you guys don't. And I don't eat meat on Fridays and you guys do. And, you know, I go through all the process and the ritual and stuff like that. And I seem to be a firmer believer. Even if you guys aren't really into it, you might still be like, you know, you sort of are getting more status. So you have this incentive inside of these structures to be more extreme than the other, like to outcompete people and being truer to whatever the ism is. And you might do that even if you don't really believe it, right? You might actually believe that you believe, but you don't really, you know, so there's this famous paper by George Ray called Men at Atheism. He argues, he thinks most religious people believe that they believe what they believe, but they don't actually believe it. And his evidence, a lot of his evidence for it be is behavioral because they don't act the way you think they would if they actually believe this thing. Like for instance, if I'm a committed Christian and I believe that I've been saved and you tell me right now that I have terminal pancreatic cancer, well then this should be my reaction. I'm really sad for my kids that they aren't going to grow up with me. Fortunately, I have lots of life insurance. They'll be well taken care of. There's lots of life insurance for that. Don't worry. But for me, I'm absolutely delighted because spending the next 40 years or 50 years with those kids is a drop in the bucket compared to being in the arms of Jesus. What a wonderful thing. The best possible thing that can happen for me and my self-interest is to die at this very moment. But people don't actually think that way or very few do, right? It's puzzling. So if he thinks, you also get this thing where you compete to have ever more extreme beliefs and do extreme versions of the ritual without actually believing what you say. And that happens, I think, with sports. You know, if we're all fans of the same team, and whenever there's a call against our team, and it's obvious that the person, say, committed a foul or whatever it might be, and I'm like, no, the referee or the umpire is blind. Even if you think I'm kind of an idiot for saying that, you're like, he's a true believer, and I kind of gained status among you. That kind of thing I think is happening in politics. There's an incentive for people to be stupid about politics because stupid works given the social benefits in the same way that like the point of the engagement ring is to be expensive and useless. So the more and more that politics pervades our social life, the worse we're going to be in this respect. So we need to depoliticize our social lives. That might mean things like reducing the status attached to voting, emphasizing other kinds of contributions that people might make. And even, I think this is something that would be important for the U.S. It doesn't apply to many other countries. And I think it's one of the reasons why the U.S. is so perverse. We have a first past the post voting system, which, as we know, statistically makes it likely you'll have two major parties. And we have just two major parties, and two major political groups that increases the amount of antipathy and politicization between the groups. So as Voltaire said in his 1706 letters on England, he's like, 
You know, when you have one religion, it just dominates and crushes everybody. When you have two, they're a constant war with each other because you're like, we're going to win if we just can kill those other people. Just one group we have to defeat. And when you have 30, like you have in England in the early 1700s, you have a much more like live and let live attitude. I can't really isolate myself. I can't, like, it's just too hard to do that. I have to learn to put up with difference. And so the sort of negative aspects of religion get toned down rather dramatically. So I think if we had 30 major political parties in the US that were actually viable rather than two, and a bunch that are just a bunch of jokes, we would be less assholes about politics. And I think you, when you look in Europe, when you have like different voting systems and other countries, different voting systems, and you see people are less pugnacious, less politicized, less obnoxious, part of it has to do with that kind of model of there's so many more choices. I, I can't just have this attitude like I'm only going to date and interact with and work with and be friends with people who have my same political beliefs. Like that's three people out of a hundred. Yeah, it seems like you've got a couple of different remedies available to you. And as you said, removing the incentives to be a cheerleader for a political side seems like one way to resolve it. The other one might be to, you know, make people true sports fans in the sense that they say, what I care about is that the game is played well, not that I vote for a particular team. And so when someone, you know, keeps cheering the ref on when he's making bad calls, that becomes despicable behavior and you entrench that norm. The other one, as you hinted at earlier, is this idea of giving the wise additional votes. And that's something we've actually experimented with in the past before. So we've had qualified franchises. So it could be the case that we say, well, if you own property, it shows that you know what you're doing when it comes to money, that you probably work in a decent profession, which requires you to get some education. And so you can vote and other people can't vote. In the UK, for example, if you lived in certain areas, you got multiple votes. If you went to Oxford or Cambridge, you got to vote twice. And the counter to that view is that, well, what happens is that the elites end up enriching themselves to the detriment of the poor. That the poor might not know what's in their best interests if you asked individuals, but as a group, they're good at taming the sort of desires of the elite and that you have this wisdom of crowds which tends towards a more just outcome as opposed to elites basically feathering their own nests. Yeah, that's right. I don't think the previous property qualifications and attempts to have a semi-aristocratic thing, stuff that John Stuart Mill defends representations uh, you know, considerations represent government. I don't think that stuff works. I like the theory of it, but I agree with you on the actual outcome. Because again, if you concentrate power in the hands of the few, they will tend to use it wisely for themselves. And if you spread power among the many, they'll tend to use it stupidly, but they'll be nice, have nice feelings when they do it. And so many times people advocate these kind of split political systems as a way of splitting the difference. You know, that's supposed to be what the separation of powers is all about. The U.S. Constitution, which I don't think is a very well-designed constitution, frankly. In theory, it sounded really great. Practice, it hasn't worked the way they intended. But part of the point was to sort of have a group that's representing the masses. We'll have these more elite groups and they'll have some degree to fight each other off. So sometimes the elites will be able to beat the masses and they'll end up doing it for public interest. And sometimes the masses will keep the elites you know, in check. And that's part of what all this separation of power is supposed to do. Try to get what's good about the elites and good about the masses, good about even a single person, but eliminate the bad forms, the bad Aristotelian forms of government. I think it's really hard to do that in practice. It hasn't really worked in part because they don't really serve as much of a check on each other. There's often a lot of coalitions and so on. The thing, if I wanted to experiment with a version of epistocracy, the thing that I'd want to do is enlightened preference voting. And the way that enlightened preference voting would work is something like this. Election day, everyone gets to vote. You don't get extra votes as a person. It's not how it works. But when you vote, you'll tell us who you are. There's a question about how, how we proceduralize that. You tell us what you want. So whatever the thing is that gets voted on, you tell us that. And then you take a test of some basic political knowledge. And we can talk about how you implement that. When you have these three sets of data, you can then statistically estimate what would a demographically identical populace have voted for if it had gotten the perfect score on this test. And then the idea, maybe you do that instead of what they actually support. At the end, you might be able to go, well, if we run the regression back, we can say effectively this time you ended up getting 7.9 votes and you got 8.213 and that person got 0.42 or something, but it's not really like you're getting extra votes at the beginning. You're not really just apportioning power to a defined group at the head of time. You're just, you know, generating an estimate of what the public would have wanted if it had been informed. But of course there's questions about how do you actually implement this? Like, so if we just ask people to write down what their demographic group is, will they just be like, oh, I want to gain the system. So I'm going to say that I'm a minority or something, or I'm going to say I'm this religious group. That's dangerous. And we have to, how do we figure that out? Which groups count? The other thing would then be what goes on the test. And what I tend to advocate as an experiment, if we actually were to try this in the real world, is using a democratic forum to pick the test. We basically 
randomly select 500 citizens, give them a few thousand dollars and say, you are tasked this week with figuring out 40 questions that you think people should know to qualify as a good voter. If the 40 things you think people ought to know can be anything, be the price of milk on average, it could be like, you know, how many diapers typical baby goes through in a day. It could be what the employment rate is. You can just decide anything and let them pick that and then use that as the test. And people often think that's puzzling when I say that because like over and over again, you talk about how little people know, how would they know what to put on the test? And I, I think oddly, the research seems to say that they actually have a pretty good sense of what voters ought to know. They just don't know it, right? In the same way that like, if I asked my 14 year old son, what would make someone a good marriage partner? He'd actually give him a pretty good theory about what makes someone a good marriage partner, but he's not, he shouldn't choose right now. He wouldn't do a good job choosing because he's 14, right? Similarly, if you ask people, what should people know to vote well, they'll come up with really smart things. It's, so you should know this, you should know this, you should know that, but they don't actually know that stuff. It might be a little bit like there have been times in the past where I've taken exams and I know what sorts of questions will be on the exam. Like, I'm like, I really should know what a ketone is and how they interact with this kind of acid for this test. But then I get the question and I'm like, I actually don't know what it is and how it interacts with the acid. I think voters are often in that kind of position. So I think they, we could ask the people what counts as a good voter. They would give us a good answer and we could use that answer to try to estimate what would the public have wanted if we're better informed. This will be flawed, right? It won't be perfect, but I think in order to be worth doing, it just has to be better. If it's better than what we're currently doing, that I think is good enough to do it. It's an interesting solution. It reminds me a bit of Rawls's original position in the veil of ignorance. It's almost like you getting people to vote on what the original position should be and what kind of agents should be involved in the discussion and the topics they should discuss. The question I have is, do you think we're moving in the right direction? So a lot of our discussion has been about the way things ought to be. And as philosophers, we, you know, we do a lot of that, but do you think we're moving in, a, in that direction or in an opposite direction? Are we just, are we just swimming blind? I mean, the recent trend in history has not been good. You know, if you Google the words, democratic backsliding and a bunch of literature will pop up about this, you are seeing around the world, according to a wide range of different measures of how democratic countries are, countries are moving away from democracy towards something else. They're not moving towards things that really would be obviously better. It's not like what's going on as people go, Oh, you know, I read Ilya Soman's book on democratic ignorance and I read Kenneth Arrow's stuff about the impossibility of aggregating preferences. And I read Aiken and Bartels about people doing signaling theory instead of actually voting the preferences. Here's a thing that solves the incentive problem. Let's do that. Like that's all they're doing. It's rather democracy doesn't work. So let's have dictators. Let's give Errol on a bunch of power. Like, oh, hey everyone, let's have a vote. Should you give me a bunch of extra power, take away constitutional constraints on my power? And they're like, yeah. That's what's happening and it's not good. We know that stuff is worse. So no, I think in general, the direction we're heading is not towards reforms that make what's good about democracy better and remove what's bad about it. We're not moving that direction. We're moving from democracies to things we know suck worse. That's terrible. So does that mean it's going to happen for 15 or 20 years? Or is it like a trend that's a real trend that like caused by something as opposed to just an accidental fact of history? I have no idea. So I wouldn't bet a lot of money about like, there being massive democratic backsliding over the next 50 years, the trend might reverse next year for all I know. But I don't think the current trend is a good one. So let me ask you this. Let's assume that we use the, something like the model that you have in mind. And let's assume that we have the weighting and it turns out the people that do really well on this test are the academics, people who work at Harvard and Yale, you know, very smart, well-informed people. And we said, we're going to weight their decisions like really highly. And the guys who are doing pretty badly, the guys who really don't know how many diapers you need to change a baby, whatever it is. Who would you rather be governed by? Think about the academic class at the moment and the kinds of views that they have. Would you like them to be creating rules that are going to shape the life that you lead? Yeah, people ask me a version of that question a lot. There's a famous quote by some conservative TV host from back in the day, it's at Buckley or someone, or like, would you rather be governed by the first hundred people in the Boston phone books than the Harvard faculty? Right. And I often say, I mean, I wrote a whole book about how terrible academics are called cracks in every tower and how perverse their incentives are. And all this stuff about social signaling applies to us. You know, you get money based upon how much you publish and status based upon how much you publish. You don't get published based upon how true you are. You get published about in a lot of fields by being very good at articulating what everyone else agrees with and defending that. You know, philosophy, I think, is better than many other fields because we have at least some taste for the avant-garde and we have this tendency to think that part of our job is to challenge what everyone assumes is true. And that keeps us at maybe a little bit better truth tracking, a little bit more honest. Some fields are better because they have 
numbers that correspond to something measurable and that can force them to uh, be more truth tracking. So, you know, the nice thing about the proposal I had is it's not like what will end up happening is, oh, if you do this, 1900 faculty at Harvard will end up ruling the country. It'll just be, you've got millions and millions of people voting. And from that, we effectively say, well, what would a public like this look like? What would it have wanted if it had been informed? It doesn't end up concentrating power in the hands of a very small number of people. It is true that those people might be more likely to get right answers on those tests, but because there's so few of them, they're just laid dry out by everyone else. You can also improve upon this, by the way, by checking for bias in it. Because once you have these three sets of data, you can do things like, imagine we have a country that's 90% white, 10% black, or the opposite. Even if, if we're asking what would the country voted for if it were demographically identical, but well-informed, because we're keeping the demographics the same, that might be demographically driven. But if we have this data, you can even check on that and maybe do something about it. So we can say, oh, it turns out the fact that we're voting for this policy is because the country is mostly white, not because they're more informed. Right. So like it's a confound, but you can check and maybe do something. So, yeah, I think there are problems with this, but it doesn't result in Harvard rules. It results in this is what the public would have wanted. A similar public would have wanted if it had been the same. These super high information voters are so few of them, they really don't have much of an impact on the outcome. We're talking about millions of people voting on a few. That said, like, you know, if I could have the Harvard economics department rule the country, which it kind of already does, as opposed to the first hundred people in the Boston phone book, I think I probably would take the Harvard economics department. The Harvard English department, those people should be disenfranchised and put in prison for the reasons I described in chapter seven or six of Cracks the Ivory Tower. So think about our current system, one man, one vote. People still get tied up in knots about whether it's been done legitimately, whether everyone's votes are being counted. I mean, can you imagine if we insert the kind of statistical analysis that you're talking about, the kinds of disagreement we'd have then, you know, you'd have the most powerful people in the world would become politicians. I would become statisticians. I mean, my, my mother would be thrilled. She's a statistician, or maybe she'd be horrified because she's very skeptical about most statistics. But the point is, if we can't even go with one person, one vote, and just some votes in a way that everyone agrees is legitimate, I mean, how would we decide upon the rigorous statistical methodology required to do this, it seems like you would never reach consensus. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There'd be a lot of conflict over this. And that's one of the main objections to it. It's like, even if it would work better, it might not work better because people react badly to it. And that response, that kind of thing applies to a lot of things. Like I, I've in print advocated, like we should just have open borders. The default assumption should be anyone should move anywhere. And then a response is, yeah, but people are xenophobic and racist. So if you waved your magic wand and made that a law, they would react by becoming even more aggressively xenophobic and would put in, they'd overthrow your law and put in a new law, which is even more restrictive than the current one. So you have to do incrementally and so on. So there really is something to this. There has to be a perceived legitimacy of government or otherwise it doesn't function very well. And in fact, otherwise society doesn't function very well. One of the problems with politicization is that because we start seeing everyone as an enemy group, we don't trust each other. You're more likely to lie, cheat on our taxes steal from one another, like be mean to the waitress at Denny's, like whatever it might be, we start doing that bad behavior because we're so distrustful. So a couple of things. One is, I think if you combined this with, you know, because this doesn't even affect things like first past the post versus, you know, other voting systems. If we had maybe some other things about how, like what it takes to get elected, like we did proportional voting or something like that, we could still run this and proportional voting, reduce politicization, increase trust. Maybe that would make it better. The other thing is I would start with higher trust countries rather than lower trust countries. They're more likely to believe other people will do this well, because I think a lot of the distrust of the system that you see in different countries is just based upon a byproduct of political antagonism. Every time the Democrats win in the U.S., Republicans go, the election was stolen. It was unfair and fraudulent. And the Democrats go, you idiots, it wasn't. And every time the Republicans win, the Democrats say the same thing. It's unfair, it's fake election, was done right. So I think a lot of the distrust comes from the politicization itself. It's really a byproduct of that. It's not because they're really worried about the actual fairness of the system. So maybe we could fix that at the same time, but you're right. These would be real issues and would reduce that. The one thing that I think would happen is that over time, people become accustomed to what they have. So, you know, people who grow up with a certain system tend to think that system is legitimate. So if you implemented this and made a couple other changes and give it 50 years, people would think it's natural. And when you suggest changes to it, they would think it's idiotic. In the same way that 
1772, if you ask most people around the world, should we have a somewhat democratically elected republic as opposed to a monarchical form of government? They'd be like, that's stupid. Of course, kings are legitimate. And now because we grew up with democracies, we're like, of course, democracies are legitimate and other forms, other systems are not. But people who grew up in non-democracies frequently think, of course, a one-party state like China is legitimate. A democracy is just a thing Westerners do. We it's like good for us. It's not legitimate per se. So one other way of drowning out the stupid vote and drowning out the sort of like guys who are rallying for a team and respecting this notion of open borders would be to allow other people to vote in your country's election. This was an idea that got mooted when Trump was running was this idea that you're dealing with someone who isn't just going to make domestic policy. This is someone who's going to be a global leader, someone who could decide the fate of many other nations in terms of trade policy, in terms of starting wars. And you could allow other people to cast the vote in that, allocate whatever percentage you think is fair uh, and allow us to decide. And that might give you those that are interested in participating in that process or more likely to be knowledgeable, less likely to be party politicized. And you might get this diversity of different preferences. And you could have people invested in each other's countries as well. So it's not just that everyone gets to vote in the American election, we all get to vote in each other's elections. And maybe you have some kind of deal in place about what their percentage is, some kind of trade deal that you have. And so then you care about this global order, you have additional checks and powers on each other's power. How would that sound as a way of dealing with some of your concerns? Yeah, in principle, in the abstract, I like that idea, but there's a big literature on this in philosophy. Being before we get to the empirical issues about how you actually implement it, there's a big literature on this in philosophy and it ends up being very puzzling how to define it and what it even needs. So if you, listeners at home, viewers at home, if you Google defining demos, you'll see some of this literature. Because there's a question like, well, who are the people that, when you say the people should rule, who are the people? Why are we... There's not obvious that we should separate it at national borders. These are similar arbitrary constructs. And in fact, policies affect people all over the world. Even small countries that have very simple policies, like it has an effect on, I can't just go to this country without getting permission, perhaps that matters to me, or I can't just trade with this country or buy something from them without getting permission from them. But then of course, some countries have tremendous effects in the world. And so it's not clear that say the, you know, the American president is only affecting the Americans, he's affecting everybody. But then you get this puzzle, like, well, who counts? If it's just everyone who could be affected by it, that's pretty much everyone in the world. If it's everyone who could be affected by how much they could be affected, great. In principle, like an omniscient being might know the answer to that, be able to do some sort of analysis of all the possible things and all the probabilities of those taking place, discount that, be able to say, you get exactly, you know, 1.2224 votes. And this person gets exactly 9.764 votes based upon this kind of like discounted regression, but we can't actually implement that. If you say everyone who's in fact affected, then that's, we don't know until afterwards. And so like the classic case might be something like, we are deciding right now about whether to bomb that country. We decided not to, so they weren't actually affected by it. Did they get a, should they have had a vote, right? I don't really know how to implement that. And then in the real world, when you implement that, you're going to get problems of, oh, cool. Now we can just rob this country blind because we have so many votes outside of it. Let's just take their stuff and give it to us because people are not good. So yeah, in principle, it shouldn't it be like when people say, if you're affected by a rule, you should have a say in it. Well, you're affected by almost all the rules. Should you have a say in almost all those rules? I want to say, yeah, but I don't really know how to implement that in the real world in a, in a way that would work. So as a fellow anarchist, I'm very curious why you're trying to fix the voting system though. I mean, why not just do away with it? Or if you can't do away with it overnight, why not gradually do away with it? Yeah, I work on democratic theory because I think it's annoying. I mean, honestly, that's a real big part of it. It's almost like if you're not in philosophy of religion, you'll be surprised you start reading it. Like overwhelmingly philosophers are not evangelical Christians, but for some reason, the subfield of philosophy of religion is dominated by evangelical Christians plus Catholics. There's very few Jewish voices and so on. I have a friend who works in the field who's been complaining about that. He's looking at the who the editors are. He's like, they're not representative of the field as a whole. So you might have a thing where people of a certain interest are the ones that specialize in that. I think democratic theory tends to be draw people who have an especial love for democracy are the ones that specialize in democratic theory. And I think frankly, a lot of them sweep or ignore just as maybe a Christian might not really deal adequately with the problem of evil. I think sometimes those democratic theorists don't really deal with the problems of evil that exist in democracy. They're often unaware of them. They don't pay attention to that literature. They think the literature isn't that big deal. There's a prayer that they do 
whenever you can play where if you say, aha, look at all these empirical things, they say heuristics and shortcuts. And then they think that solves the problem, even though in fact, the empirical literature doesn't support that claim. Wisdom of crowds, but the, there is wisdom of crowds sometimes, but it's not as robust as you think, doesn't matter. So part of the reason I started working in it was I felt it was kind of irritating. And so I wanted to sort of challenge their, some of their presuppositions, say, look, I might have my own view about what we ought to do, but like, should you be saying what you're saying, given what the facts are, given what the evidence is, how much of your stuff is even relevant? I mean, my biggest worry about a lot of democratic theory is I think it's irrelevant. I think it's based upon a model of voter behavior that we know is mistaken. And if it's mistaken, then like, it's not that they're wrong. It's just like, this is what justice would be if people behave differently. They don't behave that way. So we don't even use it. So that's part of why I do that. But it's not like I'm trying to construct a theory of justice. People are like, so you think, think epistocracy is just? No, I don't think the state is just right? The states are at best, states are at best, they were good response to depravity. Like that's what they are. So it's not my ideal theory. It's not my view of like what we really ought to do, but I do think that these questions are interesting and in a way they're more relevant because it's not like I'm going to get my way with regard to what I think we really ought to do. So given that we are stuck with these nation states that are representative and have a certain structure for probably years, it might be worth asking what we can do to make them better, since I don't think we're going to abolish them and implement like cooperative anarchy anytime soon.